turn to Hebrews 12. I decided years ago I would not do Mother's Day sermons because I had women come to me and say, this is the most depressing day of the year. They said that to me. I did. And I said, why? Uh, one was a dear sister that said, I've spent a lifetime trying to reach my boys and not one of them are saved. I come to Mother's Day asking what could I have done different. Other women come to me and say, well, I'm divorced. Other women come to me, I had a miscarriage. Others come to me and say, I aborted. And there were so many emotional issues, I decided to say, happy Mother's Day and preach. So that's why I don't do Mother's Day sermons. I'm not afraid of it. I do have a mother in heaven. And Carol and I actually formed a partnership to make her a mother. So uh, turn to Hebrews 12. Okay. Verse 12. He's been exhorting them in chapter 12. He started with a therefore. Now he's going to pick up another therefore in verse 12. Let me say something to you about the Bible. The Bible is not only correct beliefs or correct doctrine, what we ought to believe. It's also exhortation, what we ought to do. And this book in chapter 13, he said, I hope you bore with me in my exhortation. And his exhortation was 13 chapters. Exhortation. An exhortation comes from a word, a para kaleo, and the word para is simply alongside of. Kaleo is to call, and it was used of a lawyer. Uh, it's our word for parakletos, uh, the Greek word for comforter, counselor, advocate, one that gives aid, gives help. So he said, I am writing you this book to exhort you, a suffering Christian group, Hebrew Christians, that in chapter 10, they've lost their property, they've been thrown out of the synagogue, they have suffered all kinds of persecution, they haven't suffered yet the blood, so probably they're not in the city of Jerusalem, because in Jerusalem there was bloodshed, but they've suffered, they're being ostracized from the Jewish community. So they're paying a price to be a Christian. See, we debate lordship in this country, which is a bunch of nonsense. If you were saved in another country, like our friend Sequant, he said, I'm saved in Punjab. My father puts a gun to my head. I'm ostracized from my family for eight years because I'm a Sikh family. As soon as I get saved, my father threatens to kill me. I live under a Vidoc in New Delhi until Delhi Bible Fellowship brought me in and gave me refuge. He said, Lordship is not a debate in India. The moment I was baptized, I was kicked out of family, friends, and village for eight years. You think I'm trying to figure out if Christ is Lord. It's in the United States with easy believism and that it doesn't cost anything to be a Christian. It's phony baloney Christianity. That's where the debate raves. And it's why John MacArthur wrote on it. He said, too many people in this church are unsaved. We probably got a few in Valley. So he's exhorting. 
And this is where he's going, he's going to exhort them to do four things. Four things. Let me read the passage. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. NIV makes it sexually immoral. It then makes Esau a different category because we're not sure when Esau was ever immoral. But anyway, don't be immoral. Don't be unholy like Esau, which meant profane, irreligious, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He's encouraging these athletic runners, as he's calling them. He's encouraging these children that may have been suffering some pain in the child-rearing process of their Christian life and journey. He's going to exhort them in four ways. First of all, strengthen those who are weary in the race. Strengthen the weary, verse 12 and 13. Two, be peace pursuers. Pursue peace. Thirdly, pursue holiness. Third or fourthly, beware of those who are failing to enter into the grace of God. What does he want to say to them? Strengthen the weak. In the Christian race, people get drooping spirits. He said, lift hands that are drooping. When you're running, you're supposed to have your arms like this. There's a whole rhythm to running, running to win. This way, drooping, that's no way to win the race. It's indicative of exhaustion, fatigue. And he said, you'll see a brother or sister that fatigue is set in. And he says, their knees are weak. They're actually being loosened. And they're, right, they're about to get out of their running lane. They're, they need straight paths for their feet because they don't want to get off track. They all hit rocks, bumps, holes. They, they, they can hurt themselves. And he's quoting from Isaiah 35 to, first of all, Strengthen the weak. And he says in Isaiah, your God, Jehovah, will save you. You who are weak, I will save you. He said in Isaiah 40 that even young men would faint. Old men would cave in. Having fatigue and serving God is not unheard of. It's not uncommon. We've all had it at one time or the other. 
feeling spiritually fatigued, exhausted, and kind of at wit's end. And, and you're drooping. Your spirit is drooping. You say, I don't know if I can continue. I don't know if I can keep up the race. And he's telling the community, watch out for those among you who have a drooping heart, a drooping pace. They're, they're giving in. They're discouraged. They're distressed. Whatever life is doing to them, the trials, put us under persecution. Lose your house because you're a believer. Lose your job because you say, Christ is the best, and I took him as my Savior, and I got fired by my Jewish employer because I'm a Jewish boy that accepted Jesus as Messiah. I just read a report yesterday from Jews for Jesus. They're celebrating. It was on the 4th. They celebrated the Holocaust, and in Israel on the 4th, they play the sirens at a certain hour, and they take two minutes all over Israel to bow their head and remember all those who died in the gas ovens, six million of them. And so these people have lost a lot. They've been beat up, pulverized, hated, called non-Jews. They paid a price. They paid a price for claiming Christ to be the best and to be the Messiah. And he says, strengthen these people. Help these people. And he uses the word, he says, they can be healed. Did you notice that? He says, but rather be healed. See that the lame is strengthened. It's kind of like the Marines, no brother left behind. Come alongside of them. Put your arm around them. We're going to make it. We need each other. And I think it's interesting how few believers seem to know how to exhort you to good works. You remember he said in Hebrews 10, exhort each other to good works, to love. And I ask you, who is in your life that exhorts you to run the race? Do you have any? Let me ask you this. Uh, do you know how to exhort? Do you ever come next to a discouraged Christian and you can speak a word into their life that makes them want to run, gets them over the downcast spirit? We all have lagging spirits at different times. Death, disease, financial reverses, suffering, misunderstanding, relationship shot, family trouble. It doesn't matter. Where are the people who come and speak a word into me so that, as it were, my knees get strength, my arms take on strength, I can run better, I can run faster, and I've got a lifting up of my head. Barnabas was known for being an exhorter. That's what his name means, son of exhortation. And I ask you, develop that. He said the, the tongue of a wise man brings healing and brings courage. Did you know if you lose your courage, you're on the verge of losing everything? Alexander Solzhenitsyn said that. 
He said, one only need to study history to realize that the loss of courage has always signaled the end. That's why what Britain needed was more than guns. And FDR saw that they got the guns and the ships even when he went around Congress to get them to Britain. But they had a bulldog that was in a cellar and announced, we will never, never give up. We're not shoot us, send all your rockets over here, Hitler. We are not abdicating. This island will be buried in blood, sweat, and tears, but we ain't running. We lack so little of that on any level because we are afraid of any kind of pain on any level, but he's encouraging them. Run, strengthen your brother. Tell him, come on, you can make it. We're going to help you make it. We're going to get through this together. Strengthen those who are exhausted and in a spiritual fatigue at the moment. Then two, he said, be people who pursue peace. Be peacemakers. You remember what Jesus said? One of the things that will characterize my people is wherever they go, they make peace. They make peace. Uh, Look what he said. Strive for peace with everyone. Some have debated who is the everyone. Is it just the church that he's writing to? Uh, Well, Jesus said, if they persecute, you bless them. Uh, If they oppose you, don't you oppose them. And it seems to be the, the lifestyle, the mentality of true believers is they want to make peace with even the unsaved, they, they want to make peace with fellow believers. Have you ever known of people that even in the church are not peacemakers? Can be in a Christian organization and not be peaceful kind of people. Have you ever known? Well, I'm going to tell you I have. I have. I'm not as silent as you. I've met many. You know, when the gospel and the cross cease to be the main thing, you will be amazed about what the saints can fuss about. I said, when the gospel, Christ, his cross work, great truths, justification by faith, the book of Romans, when they're not in the word, not in prayer, They'll pick this church apart, and they'll be a source of conflict all the time. And many need to be disciplined. We always go after the immoral. We seldom go after those who are always stirring up trouble. Some people, I had a brother, as he shared lunch with me yesterday, told about a man that said, oh, I think I like you. And why is that? He said, well, I'm a rebel and and you're a rebel. And my friend said, oh, no, no, don't don't paint me with that brush. I'm not a rebel. I'm not a rebel. That's you, not me. I had a man say, you don't want me to come to your church. He, he, He said this to another man. He sent the message to me. He said, you don't want me to go to your church. And I said, why? He said, I'll have it split within a month. I sent the message back. I said, me 
and the elders and the deacons will wrestle you to the foyer floor before we're going to turn this church over to you. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are that we're going to sit around and turn the other cheek while you say, I'm going to split the church? I'm going to split his head. That's not spiritual, but that's where I feel. You know what? Shepherds have to hit wolves on the head while they cuddle the sheep. Two voices. Comfort the sheep and yell at the wolf. And some of you don't have any idea what that is. But there's got to be a little Richmond in you and there's got to be a little neatness. No, 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 no. Protecting God's people is worth fighting for. Protecting the name of Christ. Protecting unity is worth fighting for. So if you're a troublemaker, we'll find out and we'll show you when are you going to learn to make peace? You know, we tell the story often about the, uh, the Baptist deacon, you know, at the business meeting and the proposition, let's buy chandeliers for the church. He, he stands up. I'm against it for three reasons. One, no one can spell it. Two, we can't afford it. And the third thing this church needs is more light. He's just against it. He didn't even know the issue. I'm just against it. I used to have a, a deacon of all people. He used to tell me, because he'd always have an opposing vote in the uh, deacon meeting, and one day he just said, well, you know, I'm going to be the devil's advocate. I said, the devil doesn't need any help. <laughs> the devil doesn't need any help. We're trying to do things for God in unity, and if you don't want to be a part of unity, you're in the wrong place. Because we've got to get men of different backgrounds, different viewpoints. Can the Spirit of God get us on the same page for the glory of God? We may not always agree on it, but are we people of peace? Only you know that. Jesus said, my people are the people who make peace in the earth. Where they come, they build bridges of reconciliation. Because they have peace with God. Now they want to make peace with men. But some have this attitude, ah, no, no, I'm doing it my way. Well, you have no business fomenting your opinion. We want to build people up. We want to bring them to the Prince of Peace. I thought he was the head of the church. The Prince of Peace. I remember at Holy Ghost Hall, we, were, we had a bunch of people divided over some issue, and it wasn't the gospel, believe me. It was some mundane thing. And we were already being warned it was going to be kind of a fractious kind of a, uh, you know, congregational meeting that we used to have in those days. And I was hearing, oh, this is going to be happening on the floor, and this is going to happen. And uh, I, Steve Fernandez was my associate then, and I, I might have met with David and him, and we said, let's pray. We want unity and whatever this issue is. And, and God just put on my heart that night, when we started the meeting, we were at Old Holy Ghost Hall. I, I simply did this. I put a chair out, and I said, the chairman of this meeting will be the head of the church, the one who bought the church with his own blood. Now, Jesus, you chair it, okay? And brothers and sisters, say whatever you want as long as it doesn't bother our chairman. Okay, 
Who owns the body? The preacher or Christ? You, you're weak. Christ. It's his church. And he said in 1 Corinthians 3.17, if you mess with the church, he's going to kill you. You read it. You better look it up quick. You want to memorize it. He who destroys a local church, the word temple is plural. It's a local church. I will destroy him. And if you don't think it's true, read the rest of Corinthians. I killed some of you at the Lord's table because you came to the Lord's table drunk, and I just decided to kill you. Others I paralyzed. Do you think Christ could take your life? Ask Ananias and Sapphira. You, you, we don't fear God. We think this is my church. No, no, it's his church. He just let you in, honey. He just let you in the door. But you, none of us are running the church. There's one head. It's not the Pope. You got to go higher than Rome. You got to get way up there. And he is the head and all things will be subject to him. And he has ways of dealing with hard heads. He's got softening processes to get you to hear his voice. Hear my voice. If you don't do the church the way I want, I'll blow out the lampstand and we'll wonder why, whatever happened to that church. It's no longer around. I've had people come to me and prophesy, valley's over. I had a guy just told me, said, Ichabod's on the door. I said, well, I'm sure glad you're not a prophet. You're just a zealous young man. And we've been going 27 years since the prophecy. It's Christ I listen to. I fear Christ. I fear him to my good. He goes on to say, thirdly, you ought to be pursuing the holiness without which no one will see God. That's a tricky verse. I've had difficult with that verse for years. What does that mean? Without holiness, no one will see God. What, what do you mean? What do you mean without holiness? Let me give you an example. Holiness is used. It's the word, this word holy is translated saint, translates sanctification. So he, he could say without the sanctification, no one will see God without the holiness. What is holiness? Set apart from sin, primarily. Set apart from evil. And then the positive side is uh, pursuing righteous, what is right. So they, you're abstaining from the evil. You're pursuing the good, okay? You're like God. God hates evil. He's set apart. He's a God that's good, a God that's righteous. Now, there's three ways this word's used of God's people. One we call positional sanctification. If you belong to Christ, you're in Christ, and God says you're already sanctified. He calls us saints. Uh, see, we don't have to perform a miracle to get sainted in this. The miracle we've undergone is we've been born again. That makes you a saint. I don't wait for the Pope to declare me a saint. Christ declared me a saint. I'm a saint in Christ's eyes, okay, set apart. But some days, do I act like a saint? What about you, honey? 
Let's leave the preacher alone. You. Now, some days you don't look like a saint. You look more like an ain't at times. And you know it, and the Spirit of God grieves in you. You confess it. You've got to get it right. But I'm a saint on my worst day because I'm in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ is your sanctification. Christ. So that's settled. So it can't be this kind of righteousness. That's not what he's saying. He said, this is something you pursue. You don't pursue this. This happened to you the moment you were saved. Pursue holiness. Without it, you won't see God. Well, what is it? Then there's practical holiness. We call it progressive uh, conformity to Christ. Becoming more and more. You're in process of becoming like Christ, in process of breaking from sin, old habits, old attitudes, all of that, and you're in process of becoming more and more like Christ. I believe that's what he's saying. Now, there's ultimate sanctification that when you see Christ, you will be like him. That's completed. That's done. So we're in the in-between. I've been sanctified. I will be. But in the meantime, if I'm not pursuing holiness, I won't see God. You say, well, that sounds legalistic. Figure it out. You see, the born-again people, they begin to practice righteousness. 1 John 2, 29, we know him who has been born again because he practices righteousness. 1 John 2, 29. 1 John 3, 6 through 9, he that is born of God does not continue to practice sin, for he cannot, for God's seed remains in him. Are you still sleeping with your girlfriend? You don't know God. You're lost. Well, I received Christ when I was 10. It didn't take. It didn't take. You know, you can be exposed and not get pregnant. Didn't take. I went to the altar four to five times before I was ever saved. My first time at the altar, I must have been seven years old. Uh, the next time, maybe eight. Man, we were in emotional, evangelistic kind of meetings as I grew up. I went to the altar a lot of times. I wept. I prayed, but I wasn't born again. I can't explain it, but I, I was sincere. The altar call was made. The songs were sung. I went forward to get saved. It did not take. I was back to sin within a week. Within a week. I hear these people say, well, I, I, I accepted Jesus when I was 10, and they've lived like hell ever since. You, you're not going to heaven. You're not going to heaven. You're deceived. Raising your hand in junior church doesn't save you. Coming to an altar doesn't save you. Saying you're saved doesn't save you. When has a new nature kicked in and you got new appetites? a new appreciation of the adoration found in Jesus. Uh, no longer can be fulfilled by the old cisterns you drank from that were poisoned by this world. When has sin, you had enough of sin. You see, a starving man, anything looks good, 
But Jesus said, I'm the manna from heaven, and if you eat of this bread, you'll never hunger again. I'm the water from heaven. If you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. How can I keep thirsting for the sewer of this world and be saying, I'm feeding on the manna from a bountiful supply? Who are you feeding on? I like my sin more than Jesus. You're going where sinners go. You do not know God. You do not know God. I don't care how many times you've come forward until a new nature kicks in. And you say, that's what we ask people around here. Not just when you say you got saved. We ask the second question. When did God start changing your life? And, you, and you'll get two dates with a lot of people. Well, I took him as my Savior at nine. I lived like the devil for 10 years, and then I really got saved. No, you were touched, but you weren't changed. I've been touched many times. You can be touched, touched, but not changed. And he says, unless you have this holiness, love of God, you will not see God. He didn't say you had to be perfect. You got to be pursuing it. This is practical holiness. I, I want to do the right. You know, it, it's the illustration of the hog and the sheep. They both can fall in the hog pen, but guess what? The hog said, yippee, I found home. The sheep can say, I'm in the wrong place. I may not even know how to get out of it because I need a shepherd to get me out, but I'm not at home in this mud. And you can spray perfume on a hog all day. He's still going to wallow. Spray all the religion you want. Oh, I'm a Presbyterian brand of cologne. Well, I'm Baptist. You're still lost. You're still a hog. Because wearing all your religious perfume won't make you different. You've got to be born again, born again. That's what made the Wesleys and the Whitfields turn England upside down. That's why the Church of England hated them because while they were at Oxford, they were in the Oxford movement. They prayed every morning at 5. They slept on plywood. They fasted twice a week. They kept trying to do enough good works to make it to heaven, and they finally saw all of them. George Whitfield, both the Wesleys, they all found out we're unsaved. John Wesley came to Georgia, came to the United States to be a missionary, and all the time he was a missionary, he was unsaved, going to hell, missionary. He didn't know God. Do you know God? I mean, do you? Don't lie to me. Don't lie to yourself. And there's another question I'll ask, because God, does God know you? Because he tells a bunch of people, I never knew you. You did all kinds of religious activity. You cast out demons. You called on my name. You went through all the religious rigmarole. And there's one crowd that say, you must be saved. You must be saved. And they say, Lord, you've got to let us in. We've been operating in your name. He said, I know, but I don't know you. He said, when the Antichrist comes, the world will wonder after him because he can perform more miracles and more great things that make your head spin, and the world wonders after the beast. Have you met Jesus? Has holiness become a way of your life? 
I had a man tell me a few weeks back when he first got saved, he said a man came to, up to him in church, and while he stood next to him, he said, you know what, I have the roughest time going to church. And he said, how's that? He said, well, I'm always undressing the women in my mind when I'm trying to worship. My friend turned to him. He said, you know what your problem is? You have been saved. You don't know Christ. You got a dirty, perverted mind. You need to go to the altar tonight and get saved. Just can't get away from porno? You can if you know him. I said you can if you know him. You can if you know him. I just can't quit this cussing. Oh, you can't? I guess God didn't give you the Holy Spirit. See, God's giving you his word. He's giving you his Holy Spirit, and he's giving you a new nature. Now, without those, you couldn't be holy. But you got the Holy Spirit living in you. He's our power, is he not? Our dad used to say, I cuss all I want, I drink all I want, and I cheat all I want, but God took care of the want to. He took care of the want to. I don't want to cuss. I don't want to drink. I want to please God. I want to. I may fail, but I want to do the right. I'm on my way. I'm in process. Are you? If you're not, you won't see God. That's what he's telling them. That's what he's telling us. In make-believe phony Christianity in America, we're no, we can't tell who's saved and who's not because everybody's got it. No, they don't. It's like this. Let us track you for a week. And will we see any Jesus in you? I remember being at a restaurant and being irritable with the waitress and, and doing this and kind of demanding. And by the time I cooled down, Carolyn said, it would sure be nice if they could see Jesus in you. She said, I didn't see any of the fruit of the Spirit in that display. There wasn't. It was all flesh. I sinned. I was wrong. Then he said, help those people that are failing to find the grace of God. He said, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And what he's talking about, people in the assembly that have not come to Christ yet. They've not yet entered the grace of God. And he said, be on the lookout for them. They're in your midst. They've never really accepted Christ yet. They're wanting to go back to Judaism. They're wanting to go back. They're going to bail out of the race. They're going to go back. He said, watch out. Be on the lookout. Evangelize them. Help them. They, they want to go back. And then he starts illustrating what these people are like. Let there be no root of bitterness spring up among you and come and trouble many. And by it, many become defiled. He's quoting Deuteronomy 29, 18, when Israel turned to other idols. He used this phrase, they become like a bitter, poisonous plant among the nation of Israel. They become ungodly. They become idolaters. And he said, I'm warning you, don't let these people who've not been saved, who are thinking about going back, don't let them poison the assembly. Don't let them poison others to go back. To, no, no, Jesus isn't the best. He's not the one. They want to go back. He said, don't, don't, don't let them poison you. 
he keeps on going. He said, uh, and watch out for those who are being sexually immoral among you. Be careful of those who are unholy like Esau. And here's the emphasis. Get this. Here's the emphasis. Who sowed his birthright. Okay. What was the bargaining price? For one meal. One single meal. You get it? He would have been in the messianic line. It would have been the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, but he sold the privilege for one 15-minute bowl of soup. He sold the privilege of being a firstborn son, and the word there, don't be profane. It means no regard for God. It meant nothing to him. I've been out hunting. I come home hungry. Jacob is fixing a pot of stew, most likely lentil soup. And he said, right now, I need an immediate fix. I need a 15-minute relief of something temporal, and I will trade off something that makes me a part of an eternal plan. I will give up the right of the firstborn son for a bowl of soup. And he's telling these runners, he's telling these children that are fatigued, wore out, being tempted to go back, do not sell the privilege of being a follower of Christ for one temporal pleasure and sell your birthright. All of life is a series of trades. Just think of it. Adam, for the bite of one forbidden piece of fruit, traded paradise and was exiled from the garden, and man has been exiled ever since. That's why the New Jerusalem looks good. It's the first time we get paradise back since Adam took the fruit. Judas, you got your silver but you gave up your Savior. You saw the dead raised. You saw the multitudes fed. You saw the lepers healed. And you, in one night, could sell out the Son of God. And as my black preacher friend Smith says, you got what you wanted, but you lost what you had. You got your bowl of soup, Esau, but you lost your inheritance. And he's saying, I'm warning you, some, and the word for falling short of the grace of God, it's a Greek word. I looked it up. I, I was curious, why did they miss the grace of God? And here is what Arndt and Gingrich in their lexicon said. The word husteron means to miss out on something as one's own fault. Come too late through one's own fault. It's like you missed the train ride because you didn't show up one time. It's your fault. And they're missing on the grace of God because it's their fault. It's being presented. It's being preached. When will you enter the grace of God? What will it take? 
I had someone recently tell me, Pastor, if you just knew how to close the, the sermon, your sermons are so wonderful, but you just don't know how to close them. They meant well. They did. And said, you just don't know how to do that clencher. And I said, you're right. I never have. But is preaching Christ enough for the clincher? Or is there a little secret I got to learn? A little, the Billy Graham twist maybe. Really. Because I evangelized seven years and I got tired of getting my wife saved every night. I couldn't get anyone to come forward. <laughs> so she had to come every night, you know. Make me look good. I don't know how to close. I only know how to preach Christ. And I'm waiting. Why will you miss the grace of God and go to hell? Why will you trade your soul for a pot of soup? I never forget a man that I admired, a man with great influence, large church. I went to some of his seminars and uh, just had, had great respect. An outstanding man in so many ways, so many ways. And uh, he lost the church through immorality and being unfaithful to his wife. And I, I was so shocked and scared. Uh, I met him for lunch. I said, I, I'm brokenhearted about your situation. I'm broken. You're a man of great reputation. You're a man of a large church. You're a man of, uh, I've gone to your seminars. Uh, man, you're a leader of leaders. We don't need to lose another preacher. Why did you do it? I was watching you. I was admiring you. I was attending your seminars. He just bowed his head at lunch and he said, Son, I made a trade of a 21-year ministry in a large church for a bowl of soup. I did in 20 minutes what I never dreamed I could do. I just traded my ministry, my influence. Thank God my dear wife has stayed with me. I don't know why, but I made a terrible trade. And he's saying to these believers, don't be like Esau. Don't fling away this privilege of knowing Christ. Don't throw away this privilege of entering into the grace of God and saying, uh, I want a little bit of sex, a little bit of drugs, a little bit of porno, a little bit of lying, cheating, whatever your sin is, a little bit of Judaism, a little bit of going back and being accepted in my name. It's costing me too much to know Christ. I can't take it. I'm wore out. I want to go back. And he said, don't sell out for a bowl of soup. To have Jesus would be worth any price you ever are called to pay. Don't trade him away. Don't miss, don't miss the grace of God. One of the stupid things I did as a boy, we used to play with those little plastic soldier men in the projects, World War II, you know, Richmond's a World War II town. I lived in World War II housing and always played with these little plastic soldiers. And one day we wanted to trade some soldier men 
I don't know what came over me, how I did it. I went home and found a knife that one of my uncles had used when he fought in World War II in the Pacific Theater, brought it home as a keepsake. I used that knife to trade for some plastic soldiers. A family heirloom from an uncle that survived the Pacific Theater, a stupid little kid, got 10 more toy soldiers made of plastic. And that's what I see our young people and many in church doing. They're selling out holiness, selling out peace, selling out helping, and they're failing to enter the grace of God. And a bowl of soup is all they've got. And they've already eaten it, and now they're hungry again. For none of the soup kitchens of this world can quench your eternal hunger. Only Christ. Only Christ. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to remember. Carolyn put her offering on the Bible later. We're giving help to anyone that I announce. You feel led. We're going to try to help these young people, people in the choir that are raising money. They want to go. If you can help them, do it. Don't pour all your money in bowls of soup. Why don't you put some into the kingdom? Our Father, we thank you. You didn't give us a bowl of soup. You gave us Jesus. You gave us the bread from heaven, the river of life that flows within, the drink that you said you'll never thirst again. I thank you I'm no longer having to drink from the cesspools of this world, but I'm drinking from a source above. Help us to quit trading away the good for the garbage, for the temporal. Let us not give up things eternal for a bowl of soup. Save, save, be the evangelist for someone here today you, Lord, convince them to open their heart now and take Christ before they lose everything and die without the grace of God. Please do this for them. In Jesus' name, amen.